Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. This month on our Inspiring Women series, we have the pleasure of talking with senior curator and founder of the Museum of Ridiculously Interesting Things, Dr. Chelsea Nichols. Thank you for joining us. Good, Anne. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. As for usual, to be here. Yeah. Well, I'd say as per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Chelsea, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I am drinking a cup of poison out of my Paul Mazik yes. mug. Yes. Just um, And if this goes on too long, it will be a shame because I've got a cup of the antidote waiting. Ooh, I'm exciting. Actually, yes, it's so she, coffee. For That's those so disappointing. You, I was going to say, for those of you that are that are listening, she's got this mug and it's got like a skull's face on it. I know for Halloween, I had a skull that I kind of like had on my shoulder. Maybe a few people saw. Yeah, we're all about, we're all about the skulls and Halloween 24-7. So that's cool. Yeah. I feel like I should just get that as to have on for every day. Look. Yeah. Who needs a parrot when you could have. Who needs a parrot when you could have a skull. Yeah. <laughs> I will say. Uh, so unrelated. Um, but one of the things that um, I should say, I wouldn't say enticed Richard, but when we were first like my my husband, you know, should we should we meet? Should we not meet? I said, you know, it's this great museum in Oxford and it's called the Pitt Rivers Museum. And and I said, and they've got shrunken heads. And he was like, what? <laughs> I said, no, they've got shrunken heads. We should so totally go. And my thought was that this guy's weird. I'll just peel out. So we go to the museum I show him this display of shrunken heads and I'm like, and here we are. <laughs> I thought very few people first date shrunken heads would be the big thing to be like, yeah, we should definitely go on a date. <laughs> so that'll either be a clear pathway to date number two or an end. It's, it's it a really good test. Yeah. It's a really good like filtering system. Well, and I say it kind of leads us into this work that you're doing called the Museum of Ridiculously Interesting Things. And I've got to say to listeners and viewers, the way I came across this is um, I started an Instagram page, wasn't really sure how this whole Instagram thing works, still not totally convinced I know how it works. And these really crazy pictures came up, I think. I don't know if it was ads or what, but it was like ferrets and nuns' bottoms and like porcupines that were used as i don't know things to put on your face for good luck i don't know there's just like a horde of crazy stuff that came up and i was like this is nuts i need to go look at this and before i knew it i found myself like browsing through picture after picture and i'm like who is this woman that poses i mean i thought shrunken heads were crazy but like this goes well beyond shrunken heads and i just wonder if you could tell us a Firstly, um, what is the Museum of Ridiculous in Ridiculously Interesting Things? And how did this even come about? Oh, good questions. So the Museum of Ridiculously Interesting Things um, explores the strange, dark place between art and curiosities. And so my background is as an art historian. And it started out originally while I was doing my DPhil at Oxford as a place to put all of the fascinating things I kept finding. So I didn't keep doing all of these academic gymnastics to try and get them into my thesis. So originally, my I had a wonderful supervisor who said, oh, this stuff is really cool. It does, has absolutely no relevance to your thesis. So start a document and just put them in there. And then you'll stop trying to rewrite your chapters around these witch nuns cakes, and sex weasels and nuns yeah, bottoms. As you do. As you do. Um, to go back, my thesis was on um, human curiosities in contemporary art, and it looked 
back at how contemporary artists draw on things like histories of medical museums and freak shows and cabinets of curiosities. So you can see I was coming across a lot of really fascinating stuff, but it just wasn't all relevant. So that was that was how it was originally born. But um, my background is as a curator as well. So coming back from this museum and art gallery context, I just started thinking about what a museum would be if I got rid of all of the boring, contextual and important art history and just had a place, had just the stuff that makes you go, what the fuck? Yeah. And so it's kind yeah. of like a museum of what the fuck. And yeah. on a deeper level, it's about, it's about people and the things that make us look at the world and realize it's a much stranger and darker and more magical place than we give it credit for. And I guess that's what I want to do with my life, both as a curator and as the writer of Museum of Ridiculously Interesting Things, is just show people how strange and dark and fascinating this world that we live in really is. So this is great. So uh, those who may have maybe have followed previous episodes. Um, so I taught a um, I taught a tutorial and a, a course basically on neo-paganism at Oxford, and I had to pick um, I had to pick a topic on religion, and I thought what would be really what would be really fun for me, and I was like, boom, Halloween. Who takes Halloween to the next level? Pagans. So I found myself just like having an excuse to read about Tara and read about all these sorts of things that I always been really fascinated with when I was little and and I could be like no I have to I have to read about it because you know research and stuff so anyway what I found in doing that is it opened up this world of like fantasy and imagination and exploration and just all sorts of really cool things and what I found through the process is, like you said, there's a lot of really interesting work out there that maybe is considered taboo or kind of hush-hush or embarrassing. And instead of, instead of going, well, why do we think these things? We, we should look at this a bit more. We sort of just dismiss it and go, ugh, that's weird. And we don't stop to think about, well, why do we think that's weird? And why don't we just look at that a bit more? So fast forward... There at Goldsmiths, there was a conference that came up and it was on witchcraft. And I was like, gotta go, gotta be there. So I deliberately wore black and purple because, you know, gotta look the part. And I showed up and it was an entire room full of druids. <laughs> it was like London druids. And I was like, yes. So Amazing. all the druids of London were there. Then there were pagans and this is and that's and and at one point, like a big debate grew and one of the pagans got really upset. And then somebody claimed that, you know, the government was run by Satanists. And I was like, this is the best conference I've ever been to. And I remember when I left, one woman dressed like Morticia Adams. I was like, I am in heaven. This is fantastic. Went and told some friends. I said, you won't believe this. I went to this conference and it was druids everywhere. And this guy looked at me like, Why? Like, it was just like a, wah, wah. and I thought, no, you know what? This is the wrong audience. What I need is people yeah. who really appreciate the weird and the wonderful and those who live to embrace that, I think for me, gives me a buzz because it says, okay, why do we have to stick to the status quo? Why don't we just embrace the weird and like really just take, take it by the horns and go with it? And I think that's what you do, quite frankly. Well, thank you. I hope I hope that's what I do. I mean, I think that that's what drew me into the art world in the first place, because it felt like the meeting place of all of the people who didn't fit in anywhere else. It was mm, all the, the misfits, the misfits, the weirdos, the people who wanted to make the world a stranger and more imaginative place. But then I found in 
curatorial practice, a lot of it was about putting things in boxes and making things very, you know, that's the thing about a discipline. It disciplines you. And so mm. I, I got into the sector and found there was a lot of room to just weird up the whole thing. Um. And I guess that's what I've been making a whole career out of is just, I, I think that those are the people who are drawn to the art world in the first place, but yet we've been kind of disciplined to, it's all about very serious and academic and Frankly, when you shave off the weird bits, it only leaves the boring bits. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about history, right? Is is we're kind of trained to go and think a certain way. Like I can remember again, throw this out there. I had to teach a course in Florence, and I was teaching out there in Italy, and I had to teach about um, I had to teach about the Renaissance. Well, the thing is, the textbooks we were using, I won't name anyway. They were terrible. They were awful, and there just wasn't enough to fit in the 75 minutes I had to teach. I was like, where am I gonna go? Wikipedia. So I start looking up these different people on Wikipedia and I realized like there was some really, really questionable things going on. Like in the textbooks, it talked about how um, there was this Pope and the textbook made him seem like this, not Pope, it was a priest and he was a real stick in the mud and he didn't like the Pope at the time and he was burning pictures of these nudes that were being done during the Renaissance and it made it seem like what a killjoy, he's, he's destroying beautiful art. Then you actually read about this particular priest and you realize the reason he was mad at the Pope was because the Pope was holding orgies at the Vatican. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty good reason to be mad. <laughs> and so... Dis hard disagree. I am so on this Pope side. <laughs> so apparently the orgies were to such an extent that they were timing the amount of, you know, orgasms and things that were being done and, and then the awards would be won and he was apparently watching these orgies with his daughter to one side and his mistress to the other and so this priest was quite understandably disturbed by the whole thing and thought that maybe these uh, nudes that were being done by some of these famous artists like Michelangelo etc maybe might be contributing to this lusty nature being expressed by the church headquarters and so he was trying to get them burned now I had this wealth of information and I was teaching at a very conservative school. <laughs> I thought I have two choices. I can tell them way more and I can promise you they'll be way more awake or I could risk losing my job. So I decided to try to stick down the more conservative route Always and say, Here's lean into the orgies. I feel yeah, like you've missed I really a trick needed here, this job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did say like there's a whole lot of information and I'd strongly suggest if you were curious there are other places you can find this out but the point is there's so much crazy stuff in history because life is crazy that um, yeah. people aren't going looking into it and going like oh my gosh that really happened that's nuts so um, your museum it's not actually located in a building where is no. this museum located in the strange dark that is my brain. Okay. So it started off as a blog. It's just like a, a pretend digital thing. Um, and it's moved on to social media. But since then, I've also done a number of like pop-up projects. So most recently, um, I started as senior curator at the Douse Art Museum in um, just in the Wellington region of New Zealand. And we did a pop-up exhibition called Lost Heads and Hobgoblins, which is when I went into their collection and did sort of a selection of things from the Douse's art collection based on this lens of the strange and dark to finding, looking at it in a way that it's about strange things, but it's actually asking an audience to look at things strangely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that um, I tell people about anthropology, at least, is that it's designed to make the weird normal and the normal weird. 
And that's really the thing is to sort of spin it on its head. And I think you do that to a great extent. And it, and it just makes the work that you're doing really fascinating. Um, but when you're putting this together, remember we were talking some months ago, you initially sort of did it as like a like a filing system, an online filing system. I'll put these things up occasionally when something comes across. And um, before you kind of reached a point where you were like, okay, I think I'm going to turn this into a thing. Like, it's just not just going to be like a hobby, but it's going to be like bigger than a hobby. What was the first item you remember posting? And since then, what are some of the most interesting items you've discussed in your collection? Oh, good question. I think the first one was um, Charles Waterton's Nondescript, which was a late um, 18th or early 19th century taxidermy specimen, which is in sort of an obscure um, regional collection in the UK. And this was uh, a creature that he basically made by taking the butt of a monkey, so like monkey skin, and like adding it with different parts. And so I was just really interested in these um, scientists who are, on one hand, you know, very meticulous in their research and very meticulous in this, you know, idea of classification of the natural world. And then on the other hand, was sort of bringing in and dropping in these things that they were completely inventing into the system as like little bombs. And I'm, I'm never quite sure if they were trying to get away with it or if they thought they were being funny. But I kind of don't mind either way. But it does exist in this collection now, this nondescript, this ugly little fake taxidermy beast. But I just think that that's such an interesting part of how human nature shapes the entire history of everything mm. from science to art. Because, you know, in, they'd be traveling the world, these sort of like colonial scientific voyages, and they'd be bringing back these specimens that most people had never seen or never heard of. So it's not unrealistic to think that this, this could have just been another species that they found waddling around. And there was really no way of verifying. So museums become this thing where if you find it in a museum, you assume it to be true. And like I that mermaid, that. right? Like the mermaid. The ancient like the aliens. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I mean, rat kings, that's another one of my very favorite examples from museums. So do you know anything about rat kings? No, but is it like the rats of nymph? Because I'm getting really excited if it is. It is not, but I feel like we could talk about that next. We could. We could go down <laughs> that rabbit hole. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but rat kings is this idea, and it's kind of debated whether this is a myth or not. It's that in a tight enclosed space, if there's sort of like a nest of rats, that if their tails become entangled, they become like one super rat, and they start to move as a single organism. And there's a number of these specimens in museums all around the world. And even today, people aren't quite sure if this is something that is just invented by a sort of a whimsical scientist at some point or if this is actually a phenomenon that could happen but the fact that it sits in a museum and sort of sits in a specimen jar it does lend it this air of authenticity and i think that mm. in this way the museum itself is just as interesting as the rat king specimen wow have you what was your original question because of that's course okay i, started I mean now i have kings. like so many more <laughs> but you were you were saying like you, you kind of answered it. You're talking about some of the most interesting items you've discussed, but I've got to say, I'm going to push it a little bit further. Has there ever been an item where you've been like, dude, no, I can't, mm -mm, nope, can't, can't do it. Can't do it. Weirding me out. Um, I don't think I ever get put off with weird, but I do, I do get quite a lot of people sending me things mm. and I have, I have um, some pretty firm boundaries on the kinds of things I don't find weird. And I think um, 
a lot of times people will send me things that they find culturally strange. And I'm like, no, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah. Weird can, okay. be, weird can be things that are shared by sort of a shared human nature of strangeness. It's not strangeness because they're too exotic for your particular, let's say, white Whatever. bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So those are the things that I don't post. They tend to be things that are strange and unexplained and dark. And I really love when artists interrogate things. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite artists is a, an American photographer named Zoe Leonard. And she did this incredible series of called Preserved Head of a Bearded Woman. And it's this, oh, okay. and it's from this sort of obscure uh, Paris Medical Museum where she came across this preserved head of a bearded woman. And it was bearded. She had on pearls and this little lacy collar. And Zoe did a series of photographs, kind of photographing this from different angles. Now, I don't find the preserved head itself very interesting. I find the fact that someone thought it was kind of acceptable at some time in history to chop off this Mm -hmm. woman's head and sort of strip her of name and identifying details and kind of dress her up in these sort of markers of femininity and place her in a jar and call it science. And that's what Zoe's work interrogates. She's not asking you to necessarily look at the bearded woman and say, oh, that's weird. She's asking you to look at the bell jar that it's contained in and look at the glass and say, actually, what's weird here is how we've deemed acceptable. And so I think that the things that I'm most interested in are the things that play with that line. That's getting you to look at the world in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's got to be really healthy as well. You know, I think, um, even just, and I hate to go down to the cliche route of, you know, being a mother, like that always drives me nuts, but it is true. I did create a child. So, um, I, I do find myself kind of, putting on the anthropology hat when my daughter asks me questions you know and me being like well i mean she doesn't really care to be quite honest she's just like whatever mom has weird stuff that's fine and she doesn't see it as weird because it's what we have in the house but you know i do find myself thinking like if if her friends were to come over at some point and maybe they're not used to seeing uh the eccentric things i have in my office then maybe um it's it's good to kind of have that healthy sort of open-mindedness you know I don't know. It's just something that sort of cropped into my mind. But yeah, um, yeah. I will say, what's the most contra? You know, we did talk about how, you know, there isn't, you have your strict boundaries, but it's not so much that you um, are weirded out by things, but you have your rules because this is your thing. What would you say is the most controversial or talked about item you've posted on the museum's website? I think the most talked about, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's controversy in sort of a traditional sense, but I, um, I got really into collecting images of hidden mothers in old photographs. So this is in the 19th century when you were trying to take a portrait of a child. Often you would get the mums to put the kid on their lap to keep them still because the exposure times were a little bit longer. And so they would place mums under these sort of set dressings. So they would be hidden under like a blanket or a curtain. Um, And it wasn't always mothers. Sometimes it was photography assistants. But it becomes this thing is once you spot it once, you can see it over and over and over again. These pictures of these Victorian children and the mothers are completely sort of effaced in these photographs, kind of hidden in the background. And again, it's one of those things that you would have never noticed until you can't stop noticing it. So the thing that became, it became sort of a... uh, bit of a conversation in its own right was this debate on whether some of these kids were deceased oh and so that there was a huge debate over whether or not it was holding 
children who had deceased as their sort of and that was a thing that happened sort of memorial yeah, didn't they used to draw the eyes in with um marker so that it looked yeah. a little bit more alive and they would dress them in clothes and prop them up and against things because they had like exactly. and yeah so at times it was that and at times it was just you know these sort of beautiful very peaceful looks like children are sleeping mm. i mean my my take on it is that the whole point of the hidden mothers was to keep the kids from wiggling around so if they had been passed on they didn't need that but it i couldn't believe the enthusiastic response to debating this issue of whether these kids were dead or not it became this huge like i mean like thousands of people on the internet debating this and i just think that that tells you something again again it's why i'm most interested in this i mean this phenom this photography phenomenon is interesting but actually what's really interesting is the way that people react to these photographs of people who've passed away or not, you know, 150 years ago. And the fact that that just really excites people's imaginations. Mm. And it was, it's a very practical solution. Having somebody sort of sit, if you don't want a photograph of them, but you want the kid, but they won't sit still. But yet it just inspired this whole sort of imaginative response of why you would hide women and why you would hide mothers. And people found it really disturbing and creepy and, Anyway, love people. Yeah. Yeah. The people I mean, are the true weirdos. Yeah, they are. But, you love. know, what are you going to do? Um, I, I will say um, one of the things that's, you know, it, I think it's a bit of a catch-22 when you have a site that's as popular as yours. Um, and I, I've seen this in other sites as well. Um, there's a woman that I've recently started following who um, she actually, you might be interested in this. She refurbishes uh, gravestones. And she does it as a form of therapy. And so what she does is she talks about the process. She's in Bedford, Virginia. I think her name was Alicia. And she ended up losing, she ended up having a divorce and she and her husband had to split custody of the kids and she was an at-home mom. And it was very traumatic. And anyway, what she ended up doing um, is she was really into genealogy and ended up meeting somebody who just for fun would restore gravestones at cemeteries, really old gravestones. Those that were just covered to the brim. You couldn't read anything. And so what she did is every time she cleaned a new gravestone, she'd write the story about that person and what she could find. And Ah. what was really interesting is she found out about quite a lot of people in the Virginia area who were former slaves, who their owners were, et cetera. And what was really interesting about the work that she did is that it would spring about these debates. But, um, you know, I think it's like anything. um, I do wonder with, with work like you and I, I know we hadn't necessarily agreed to talk about this, but I think it's important um, when you're talking about things that can tie onto people's emotions, emotional responses. um, How do you keep your website so that it it maintains true to what it is and that, you know, you don't, you know, there's always going to be sort of those people that are um, the naysayers, right? Who you're doing a good cause, you're doing something great, and they might not respond to the way that you want. And so I'd just be curious to know, how do you, kind of say you know what this is my rock work this is what i like to do and i'm just gonna move past that i mean it may not even be an issue in your case yeah i i think i've been quite lucky that i've the community that's grown around this has really surprised me and how many people have been um interested in this and i have to say the vast vast majority have been really supportive and really interested in this kind of thing and use it more as a platform for finding their own interests off it. So I have to admit, I, I can't really speak to that because I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky. But I think being a curator with working with artists who who do that all the time and 
you know, they're provocative and they're meant to sort of evoke. I, I do feel quite comfortable with mm. a, a range of responses to the things I put in public because it's, it's the work I do every single day. So yeah. I think if that does, if that ever changes tone, that'll be fine because it's kind of, for me, the spectrum of responses. And it's like when artists put their work into the world, they lose control of those meanings. So they can set it with a certain amount of intention, but the interpretation is beyond them. And the interpretation is beyond the individual artist once it kind of goes into the public sphere. And I think being really comfortable with that and being okay with the fact that these, actually that's, that's the, that's the joy of it really is that sometimes the ideas that you the histories, the ideas, the art that you work with is bigger than even what you realize. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was going to say, um, I know that a uh, bit of a sidebar here, but recently um, we've been talking quite a bit off and on by email about, um, speaking of controversial items, sex weasels, meat rain, and witch cakes. Could you tell us a bit more about these interesting items and how they have worked their way into your collection? Oh, where to start? There are three very different things. Um, maybe we'll start with sex weasels because this is one of my very favorite things. Okay. So sex weasels began is what I was talking about earlier is when you're in a discipline, you tend to write and think about things in a particular way. So it came from a paper that I wrote during my undergrad, which was looking at sort of erotic symbolism and imagery in Renaissance portraiture. Okay. And it was very much on those kind of making things sound like that. And I, I looked at this paper that I had done um, sort of 10 years later and I realized oh why didn't I just call it sex weasels because that's all it is because it was all about the symbol of mustelids which is sort of weasels ferrets stoats martins and I started to look at how in each of these different renaissance portraits they spoke to either um, eroticism or fertility imagery or uh, it was a symbol for stood in for something phallic and so it was actually about not you know, all this information was already out there. It was just packaging it in a way that made people say, oh, is that what those things are doing? Is that a sex weasel? That's a sex weasel. Well, yes, that Leonardo (laughs) da Vinci, woman with an ermine. Yes, that is a sex weasel, actually. So it was just about building a bridge in a way that was enticing. I guess it's using all of the bad shit that we talk about on the internet with clickbait is mm. giving art history <laughs> clickbait because all it is is you know the information didn't change it was just that pathway that we brought in yeah yeah so, framing something as sex weasels you're just like the, the what now excuse me but doesn't that kind of i think get back to the point when we talk about history and how we we boringify it you know, by making it sound really dull, really dry, really like Bueller, Bueller, very crispy. And then when you look at it, what it is, and you're like, yo, that's a sex weasel. And you're like, I'm yo, sorry, time out. Weasel. And you're like, well, that's what you did. Everybody had a weasel in their pocket. And then, you know, you realize actually everybody's got their own kind of like ha 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 moment. And that's just what it is. I think, I think what's really cool about this sort of work is that you're stripping away the the politeness shall we say and calling it what it actually is and i mean you look at these designs they're beautiful that's the other thing i mean they look incredibly expensive golded heads with stones on them they're uh, what was there i looked read quite a few of them um and how like i read about the story i was so again good old wikipedia i read about the woman with the the ermine and that um leonardo da vinci had done and I didn't realize that she was a mistress to one of, to his his major client at the time, Ludovico. 
And she was 15 or 16 when she got pregnant. Yeah. And he had actually that same year gotten married to another 15 year old. And he was about Charming. 39. And it's like, hooray. And then the wife found out she got upset. This lady of Ermine, even though she had a son, ended up getting kicked out of the palace. And like you realize there's like a whole story behind there that it's not just like she's it's almost like a slap in the face to his new wife. It's like not only is this painting getting commissioned, but she's getting commended for being so fertile. And by the way, here's a ferret to really like drive the point home. And then you imagine his new wife finding out about it. Like I would explode. I would absolutely explode. It's <laughs> really fascinating. <laughs> That's what I love about Leonardo da Vinci. You know, everyone just everyone knows the Mona Lisa, but they don't know that he was da Vinci was hilarious he puts all of this stuff in all of his paintings and so this one with this lady with the ermine who which is this white ermine which is a symbol of purity I mean he's winking at the audience like she's but not like pure she is pregnant yeah. purity my ass and then actually the his major client at the time his he was part of the sort of secret society of knights and one of their symbols was the ermine and Mm -hmm. so this long-bodied mustelid and it is also a little wink at like his manhood so you have this incredible beautiful painting and everyone says oh leonardo what a genius but he's actually making sex jokes and i'm like great that does not take away his art historical merit that only adds to it and there was another one you did right where there's a woman she's had three kids and then there's an accompanying painting that goes next to it where her husband has this um massive quad piece piece. it's like hi nice to meet you um it's very prominent and then the one of the sons is apparently looking at the cod piece of like oh this is what i have to live up to and i'm like oh my gosh if i had to look at that like ew but it is this whole thing of like manhood and everybody just sort of goes like this and looks the opposite way i mean there's another piece and maybe you've heard of it there's um so there's a cake that you can get in italy um, and um, if there are any Italians listening, I apologize. I think it's the St. Agatha cake or San, Santa Agatha, I think is what it is. Anyway, it's a boob cake. I was gonna so, say that. That's the, must yeah. be the sliced breasts. Yeah, the sliced breasts. So you can have these boob cakes and apparently they're very nice. And I had seen this painting years ago. I was about 19. We were in some museum and I saw if anybody is unfamiliar with the story of St. Agatha, the long story short is she sacrificed her breasts. It's it's this sort of sacrificial thing that she either she got punished. I don't know. I don't remember the whole story. But the point is her breasts get lopped off. And there was a painting that was commissioned where she has them on a silver platter and they're perfectly round boobalas. And she's holding them up. And I'm in this tour and I'm looking at all the stuff and I'm like, wait, 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 what's with the boob lady? <laughs> Apparently, everybody else just kept walking. I was like, no, 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 that woman has her boobs on a plate. We need to talk about that. But we just kept (laughs) walking. And I just remember that image of like, what happened to her? And it wasn't until about last week, my Italian friend went, oh, this is what happened. By the way, we have a cake to celebrate it. I was like, that's great. (laughs) So that sounds delicious. A host of wonderful things out there. I just felt a bit sorry for it, to be quite honest. But. Well, it becomes as actually a really common like motif in painting of a certain period with the St. Agatha with the, the two breasts on the silver platter. Okay. And what's interesting, it's just this becomes this vehicle at the time for like it's it's sex, it's violence in a time yeah. where, you know, that kind of stuff couldn't have been outwardly expressed. It's like you're Pope in the orgies. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is, if you're going to talk about this revered woman, you don't want to talk about 
the fact that she's been defiled. You want to take that defiled image and sort of reify it. And so maybe that's why she has it on a platter and she's like serving it upwards, right? As opposed to other images you could quite frankly put together as well. But uh, speaking of meat rain, what is meat meat rain? rain? Does it relate to Lady Gaga's meat dress? What are we talking about here? It does not. But like, what isn't meat rain also? So I originally posted this on, I think, Valentine's Day last year. So the meat rain is this little jar. It's gorgeous. In um, It's in a little museum in Kentucky, I believe. And so in 1876, in this sort of uh, rural county in Kentucky, one day people looked up and it was just raining rotten meat. And so apparently some very brave souls even tasted it and said it maybe tasted like either mutton or veal. And some people speculated that maybe it was um, sort of the half digested uh, dinner of vultures who had sort of been spewing this up over the town. But it was a big mystery. Mm. Yeah, gorgeous. Meat vomit. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so they've kept this sort of sample and there's been, you know, there's been questions of whether they should sort of test it now, now that we have genetic testing and whether we should figure out what this is. But, you know, like I posted this on Valentine's Day and my argument is that we shouldn't test it because I think that mystery is what keeps romance alive. And what doesn't say romance other than a bottle of meat from 1876? Yeah. Just a meat rain. Didn't Prince write a song about that? Was it Purple Rain? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that had a different message, but um, you're going to have to take that up with Prince. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then uh, Witch Cakes. What's going on there? Oh, Witch Cakes. So back to Pitt Rivers. Um, witch Cakes is a, a thing that was um, baked and placed on doors in usually like the late 17th century. And so the idea was that you once a year, you would bake these witch cakes and they kind of look a bit spiky and they're like kind of dried out. Uh, I suppose they're like a, a baked good, but they're preserved in some way and hung on the door. And this idea that it could repel witches. Mm. But the really interesting thing was how it repelled witches, because apparently if a witch crossed over the threshold, if you had one of these witch cakes hanging, she would get burning, intense pain in her well, she peed. So basically, oh, did she get like a UTI? She got a UTI, and so what? this was the theory in the late 17th century: was if you got a UTI, it's because you were actually a witch, but you had crossed over the threshold of one of these witch cakes. So there's a really great, like, um, I think this was a 19th century example of these witch cakes, but but kind of baked in the traditional way that is in the Pitt Rivers Museum and mounted on this little witch cake card. But I feel like that is something I, I want to start. Like, I don't really like to bake, but I feel like. Yeah, that could get me into it. I mean, I don't want a UTI, but I'll take the cake. Like, I'll take any cake. If too many (laughs) witches come in, I mean, they can get the UTIs. Yeah, well, you know, we can put it to the side, and then when they leave, we'll put back up, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's nice. We're witch family houses. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind. Thank you. So anyway, witch cakes and meat rain and sex weasels. I mean, all of this stuff exists out there already. They're all in museums all over the world. And I Mm. just think, let's... I mean, if I had unlimited resources and I was queen of the world, which I'm still working towards and on a career path, but if I get to start my own museum of ridiculously interesting things and I could pick and choose all of the things I would most like to have in my museum, it would be these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I was going to say, because you're doing some really cool projects right now as a senior curator at the Douse Art Museum in Lower Hutt, New Zealand. Um, And I was wondering, firstly, could you tell us what are some of the projects you're doing and how can we access some of this online? 
Well, most of the stuff I'm doing is um, in-person things, which makes it a little tricky if you're not in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But um, one of the shows I'm working on right now, I'm really excited about, which is called Candy Coded. Um, and it's bringing in both international and Aotearoa, New Zealand-based artists. And it looks at artists who've drawn on that kind of sugary, sweet, candy aesthetic, but to explore the darkness underneath. So it's this kind of idea like in like anxious, candy land. Like a bubblegum goth. Like so nice. when you come in, it's gonna be here, here's a little here's a little brochure of one of the works Ooh, by John Orlando, okay. which is in it. Yeah, that looks candy coated. There we go. So they're pink. It's gonna be fun and sugary and sweet, but then it's really all about kind of the um seduction of capitalism and all of this dark Ooh. nightmare shit that lives right underneath the surface of the candy. Whoa. So, that looks like intense. there's this really great artist. So she's from New Zealand, but she's based in Cologne at the moment. And I'm Aliza Barzak. And she makes these very hyper realistic ceramics of like junk food that you would find in um, like a corner shop. Um, and it just, it's, they're, they're so beautiful. You just want to put them in your mouth, which I don't encourage as a museum professional. Mm-hmm. But she's really interested in that kind of tradition of vanitas still life from the 17th century and kind of revivifying that tradition, but mixed with this idea that like in, you know, corporate Western societies, these junk food conglomerations pour like literally millions and millions of dollars into researching like the exact crinkle of a chip bag or the exact kind of color of Dorito that makes you most want to eat it and making these foods sort of as addictive and as seductive as humanly possible by, you know, researching like our biological and psychological makeup as humans and how then it's sort of sold for pennies. It's like the cheapest stuff you can buy in the store, but millions and millions of dollars are poured into these things to make them as seductive as humanly possible. And so it's this thing where this is a beautiful and delightful work that draws on this beautiful still life tradition, but actually about how how dark and um, it really is underneath all that stuff. Oh, that looks so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, you know, I, I think there are going to be quite a few people who are going to be looking you up. And I think what's cool is that even if, if we can't be there in person, you do take bits and bobs of things that you find and you always put on your website. It's just like, hey, guys, come check out Look in case this. you're interested. And I was going to say. And the does run a good Instagram as well, which also does oh, lots of great. little bits from our exhibitions as well. Okay. So. And we can put some information on the show notes so people want to access that as well. So that'd be right. great. Well, and post pandemic, everyone should just come visit New Zealand as well. It's pretty you know, amazing it, here. It does seem really nice. Yeah, really nice. The weather's just so nice in Britain right now. I mean, come on, freezing <laughs> rain? Who wouldn't want that and pitch black sadness? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's like a dream come true. Anyway. Um, I will say quite a few of our listeners are secret creatives, but they're a bit nervous about how their audience might respond to their particular interests and curiosities. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but what advice do you have for those who are thinking of putting their unique interests out there? Uh, I mean, beyond the obvious, just just do it. Like there, there's we're living in this beautiful world where the weirdos will find you. So mm. just give less rats. So my, my partner, he always talks about, um, you know, that saying, like, I don't give a rat's ass. Yeah. So he talks about how many rats he gives things. So I guess it's like how many fucks he gives, but yeah. it's just like, so he's like, I just give zero rats to this. And so I feel like that's a really good, like life philosophy of just giving less rats and putting it out there. And I think just being unafraid to break the mold of the way things are supposed to be done, because 
the way the rules that are set, somebody had to break rules to get it to that point in the first place. So I think being unafraid to just, you know, the academic system, frankly, it's quite broken. So you might as well just make up your own shit. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. I don't know. This feels like very cliched kind of advice, but I guess just be weird. But I think you, I think you're, you're hitting into something. I mean, something somebody had told me recently, uh, actually, I think it was Kate Armstrong who did a show recently on um, your time of the month uh, during the time of Queen Elizabeth. Is she said that, you know, your people will find you. And I think that's really the thing to hone in on is, you know, even if your, your people might be a small conglomerate or your people might be millions of followers, it doesn't really matter. The point is you will, you will find them and they will find you. It's just a matter of persistence and just kind of being willing to put yourself out there. And, you know, if you're nervous, maybe put up some comment blocks. If you think that people, you can always delete them. You don't have to engage. And yeah, that's um, true. And just and just see what happens. And it seems like in your case, it's actually just turned out to be a really great, positive experience, which is a really good thing. It's, it has been really positive. And I think it's been one of those things that has also, um, you know, it started out as a, as a way to put all my academic frustrations in a different place when I was doing my my Ph.D., because, you know, you've, you've got so many limitations and particular ways of writing and particular ways of being when you're in that kind of environment. And it became this sort of freedom, this place that I could do. I could just be Chelsea. And it's actually grown to become more of like a philosophy in how I've ended up approaching my entire career. And so I think even in the jobs that I've gotten, you know, this is now how people kind of know me and know how I work. And it stopped being this thing that I did in addition to my professional self. And it just became my professional self. Like I, I can no longer be separated from the Museum of Ridiculously Interesting Things. And I've been really lucky to have um, a director, Carl Chittam, at my at the museum I work at now, who, you know, part of the appeal in bringing me on the team was because of this, not despite it. That's and you know, it's taken me kind of a long time in my career to get to a point where this didn't become the sort of like embarrassing side thing I did. Like that mm. took away from me being a legitimate art historian, but has now become a thing that is recognized as a way of building audience and building bridges between, you know, we talk a lot in the art sector about how we bring in new people and how we bring in new audiences and how we make it accessible to people. And it's only really now where it's being recognized as this kind of thing does that. You know, yeah. And the thing that we always talk about wanting to do. Yeah. Would you say that the longer that you've worked on this, the more it's kind of built up your confidence and being like, no, I really know my stuff. Like it's very clear. I know my stuff and this is evidence of that? Yeah, I would say definitely. And I think that one of the things for me, um, and especially being a young person in a field like academia or in sort of the, the museum sector, is I think that there's a lot of that internal debate going on about whether you have an authentic enough voice where you feel yeah. like you're enough of an expert, if you feel like you know enough about what you're talking about. But I think it's partly recognizing that understanding audience and understanding what people find interesting is itself a skill. So sitting Mm. in with sort of older academics who really want you to be doing things in a particular way and realizing that what you are bringing to the table in terms of being able to take their interesting research and reach a lot of bigger an audience, that is itself a skill and it it is itself something that they maybe can't replicate in the way that they do things. Mm. Um, Yeah. I feel like I'm keeping that very vague, but it's actually about... I, I think it's good. I, I a part of me feels like even with the pandemic, it's forcing sort of individuals f- from a certain generation are maybe realizing that they may not know everything, 
and that this is a time to maybe sit back and eat some humble pie and realize that maybe some younger people might be onto something and it might be worth paying attention to. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's definitely not like throw out all the old ways and bring in something new. I'm definitely never like that. But I think it's actually about that the strength is in taking what's great from what you guys did and what's great from what we did and making something together that's better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we look up to those people, but at the same time, I think it's that thing of wanting to demonstrate that you're not just bringing potential, but you are what's going to be needed in order for them to to feel relevant so that their research isn't for nothing, right? You know, it's, it yeah. has to, we, we don't like to write to nobody. We don't, we, we like to make sure that our work is actually relevant to more than just two people, including the editor and your mom. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> these, are, these are things that are an actual reality. So I think it's really cool what you're doing. And I was going to say, speaking of your mom, um, are you looking for contributors? Because I know that I will be contributing something to the next few weeks about a certain right. subject so yeah uh, are you looking for contributors for your blog i think i'm less looking for contributors but i'm more looking for collaborators at this stage Ooh, great okay so i'm really interested in kind of like what i just talked about is figuring out how what i'm doing can intersect with the things that other people are doing and how we can make something together that's new rather than people just sort of feeding into the thing that i've already made so I feel like I've got a pretty clear idea of what I like in my ridiculously interesting world. I'm more interested in what other people are bringing and how we can then we can merge. Kind of like what we're doing right now, Anne. I think this is yeah. like I think it's what you've been doing with um, your podcast is really really cool. So hence why, yeah, I'm all up for collaboration. Insane. And if that, but yeah, means I that think, I, yeah, go on. No, no, go for it. I was going to say, if that means that I need to write an article about, um, you know, an elephant phallus, which is what I will be doing, <laughs> but I promise right. there's historical con- context to it, you know, and that's what needs to be done, by golly. Ele- elephant phallus is, is it's just where my brain is at right now, Anne, so I feel like you're really bringing something <laughs> crucial <laughs> okay. into my life. <laughs> I this hope I can I do you well, but I was going to say, if um, anyone's interested in collaborating with you at any point, what's the easiest way for them to contact you? I have contact information through my blog, but also through Instagram. Um, yeah, just send me a DM. I'm not that great at getting back to every single person who reaches out um, because unfortunately I do get reached out to quite a lot. I mean, fortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, and okay. I can't respond to everybody, but I really do try and make an effort, especially if there's something in that that like sparks my imagination. I will always try and, and connect. Perfect. So I always, and I always read everything. I'm just not that great at emailing. I'm you much better at talking about sex weasels than I am at answering my emails in a timely and making fashion. making witch cake. Don't and that. that, to be determined, if we go into another lockdown in New Zealand, you know, sourdough bread, witch cakes. <laughs> I will say sourdough does taste nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you haven't tried a witch cake. But you haven't had a UTI. <laughs> you haven't had a UTI, so... <laughs> Cool. And I got to say, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Chelsea Nichols for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available in the show notes. In the meantime, we'd like to give a shout out to our newest patron, Jasmina. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to support our podcast by becoming a patron, where for as little as one pound per month, you can get early access to episodes as well as bonus episodes and much, much more. It's contribu- um, contributions like yours that help our team to keep 
the show going. And if you're watching our show on YouTube, hey, please feel free to click the subscribe button below to stay up to date on future episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.